Hello, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to Alex, welcome to you all. Welcome to the beautiful city of Lisbon. Um, Alex, I wanted to kick off by asking, what was the, uh, the main idea behind the book? How did it come about? Yeah, great question. And I also want to say it is, before we kick off, it's awesome to be here at Web Summit. Awesome to be here at Book Summit. From what I understand, this is the first ever discussion on the Book Summit stage in Web Summit history, making you the first audience ever to see some Book Summit conversation. So let's hear it for you guys. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Okay, a little tepid, but I appreciate you all. We, we can work on it. Yeah. Now, what, what kicked off the idea for, for Always Day One? I, I'm a reporter. I spent years reporting on the big tech companies in Silicon Valley. And one of the things that I saw is, despite all these challenges that we, we encountered over the years, the sh transition from desktop to mobile, um, moves uh, where competitors would come in and take advantage of new technology like cloud technology, something happened where the big tech companies kept getting stronger. And you know, I, there's, there's a temptation to say that this is all about business strategy, right? It's the business strategy of the tech giants that are actually enabling them to, uh, to dominate. And, and I think there's part of that, that's partially true. It's also partially true that some of the unscrupulous behavior that they're using is, is helping them stay on top. But, but I, having seen inside these companies, I thought that there was something else. I thought that the way that these companies run themselves, the way that they use artificial intelligence to minimize the work that would typically take you know, many days and, and shrink it down to hours or minutes or even no time at all, and then the way that they elevated ideas. So the technology, the leadership, the culture, and the process inside these companies was sort of the untold stories into why they had actually been so dominant. And it's not a story that fits easily into an article you and I w both worked at BuzzFeed. I don't think it would really be a, um, a story to pitch the news editor about why these, you know, what was going on inside these companies. It needed to be book length. And that's what we ended up uh, pitching, myself and my agent. And that became always day one. What was the, the most surprising uh, element of your reporting and your research when, when you went into the book? What, what really threw you when you were uh, delving into these issues? So um, just to ask the audience, show of hands, when you think about the way that the tech giants have innovated, how many people here think that it's mostly the ideas coming from the top, coming from people like a Jeff Bezos or a Mark Zuckerberg? Okay, and, and how many people think that it's the ideas coming up from the employees? So obviously we have some, from some readers of, of Always Day One. You know, there, there's definitely a perspective from, my, from where I sat that there was um, visionary leadership in Silicon Valley. We all know that, um, you know, Steve Jobs is like the prototypical Silicon Valley CEO, someone who says we're going to build an iPhone, we're going to do it this way, and the company followed. And I think for me, one of the most surprising thing was not only the fact that the employee ideas are really what drive these companies, but the systems that the leaders have built to not just say, all right, it would be nice to hear from employees once in a while, but to say the only way that we compete is our, through our employee ideas. And we're going to make sure that if there's a good idea in this company, then it's going to get to us. Like last century, the average company lasted on the S&P 75 years. So it took one good idea to basically spend a lifetime on the S&P uh, in, in the last century. Now it's 15 years. So basically you need three, three and a half ideas in order to stay on the S&P 500 for as long as you used to last century. And the only way to do that is if the ideas are coming from everywhere, not just one person. And I just think the determination of these companies to 
funnel those ideas up and make room to build new things was, was really surprising to me. How about the most surprising interviews when you were researching the book? And was there anything that didn't quite make it into the book for various reasons? Well, I think in terms of what didn't make it into the book, um, it was the, the companies, right? So we were looking at, at definitely going to look at Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, which, you know, they were called, it was called Facebook back then, <laughs> not Meta. Um, and we had to decide, okay, uh, what other companies? So we want Netflix, do we want Uber, um, and, and do we want Twitter? And all three of those companies didn't make the cut. I would say, you know, for good reason, because um, Netflix, I never really viewed as a technology company. Netflix is an entertainment company that's good at streaming. Uh, Uber's culture is not something you want to write home about. And look at what's happened after Uber and the culture that they've had. They've still struggled to turn a profit. Uh, and, and Twitter, I mean, we're not supposed to spend this whole time talking about Elon Musk, but you saw how that ended up. So, um, so I, I think focusing on those, those four, and then the surprising ad was Microsoft. Now, I thought Microsoft was a boring company. Nobody wanted to read about it. Um, but actually, I, I thought Microsoft is a fascinating company in terms of the way that it had this attachment to on-prem servers, which I know is you know, probably the most exciting thing you're going to hear about all week. Uh, and then how they shifted from that, which was a business that was making them billions of dollars and decided it doesn't matter if that business goes by the wayside, cloud is the future, and, and decided to move forward that way. Now, to me, you know, the most surprising interview I had through the entire book process was um, speaking with Amazon employees who had had their jobs automated and saying, uh, you know, not people in the warehouses, people in the retail so white, white collar workers who are working with vendors, negotiating and ordering products. And Amazon has this, uh, this principle, it's called invent and simplify, right? The idea is anything that can be more simple inside Amazon, you make it more simple so you can invent more. That means shrinking processes down. That means finding whatever's going uh, to be repetitive in your company and making sure that you don't repeat those processes, that you find ways to automate them. And people who are literally on the phone with brands, can I get this number of units in this fulfillment center at this time for this price? This is the, basically the, the core work inside Amazon. The company turned that work over to algorithms. And I expected that the people whose work was turned over to algorithms would be pissed. Uh, but it turns out that they were actually like pretty stoked about the idea of then turning the stuff over to the computers and finding new ways to be inventive within the company because they saw the business logic. They saw that if we're able to automate this, it's going to put us that much far ahead of our competitors. And that's what happened. And look at, look at where Amazon is today. It's in large part, A, due to the culture, and B, the belief in the employees that it would actually be better for them and the company in the long term. And that's what's happened. Do you think that Amazon stands out in terms of automation as opposed to the, the other four companies that we're talking about today principally? A Amazon definitely stands out in terms of uh, a tech company that automates. Now, I think all five of the big tech companies, um, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, do automate to a certain extent. Um, but Amazon has the automation DNA in its bones because of the warehouse work, right? Uh, I think that once Amazon realized that it could automate the work of moving a container from you know, one place to another with robots. It, it realized that this was possible not just in the warehouse, but also inside the headquarters. And I think some of the really interesting, really fun stuff inside Amazon, and this, I go into depth in this in the book, it's called Hands Off the Wheel. It's a program where it, it, the people who were, again, the retail workers who had their hands on the wheel, who were really working to 
um, order every product, negotiate with every vendor. You know, if they could just ease off and turn that over to the algorithms, uh, then that, that might end up to be you know, a, a boon for them in business. And they really set their minds to it uh, and you know, did some extremely impressive stuff when it comes to automation inside their headquarters and of course their warehouse. Um, let's talk about the, the title. What, what does a day one mindset look like? Uh, let's, maybe we can stay with Amazon because we were just talking yeah. about them. And right. how does this play out at some of the other big companies as well? Absolutely. Do we have uh, any startups in the house? We have, we have some. Any, any people working at big tech companies or bigger? Okay, so you, you showed up too, that's cool. <laughs> so there's a difference between the two of you, right? The coolest thing about the people who are working for startups um, outside of the fact that they probably dress funky and, and, and work you know, 19 hours a day, uh, is that they are able to build whatever the market needs that day without any regard for their legacy product. There is no keeping up the flagship product when you're a startup. It's all about what can I build today that the market needs without any regard for what came first. And that's why startups are able to disrupt big companies because big companies spend so much time maintaining their flagship because that's where the money's coming from. So they might see the future. But again, like the Microsoft example, they might be so tied to the revenue coming from the past that they can't get their act together and decide, okay, it's time for us uh, to go ahead and move in this new direction. So going back to the title, why is the title always day one? This is something that Jeff Bezos says within Amazon, uh, or used to say, right, when he was CEO, that it is always day one. And that means what he's telling Amazon employees is, you have a temptation to work on our flagship product. You have a temptation to work on the thing that's made us the money up until this point. Don't do that. Build whatever the future needs, and we'll figure out what's brought us here until this point, but unless we figure out what the market needs today and build for that, we're toast. And, and you see that so many times through Amazon history. And the most interesting example is, of course, where they started as a first-party marketplace, right? They would spend their days ordering products and bringing it into the warehouses. And then they flipped, and they became a third-party marketplace. Really, right now, Amazon does have the stuff that they stock inside their fulfillment centers and send out. But the company, by and large, is a marketplace where they now have other vendors coming in and selling through them. And of course, they'll pay a fulfillment cost inside the warehouse. And of course, they're probably going to pay ad, you know, ad revenue uh, to, to Amazon. By the way, it's the only company that's doing well in the ad world right now, which is interesting. Um, and they said, if we can get the people from the outside competing with the people from the inside, it's going to be better for us in the future. We'll build what we need in the future, and we don't have to spend time maintaining. And so that's an example of this always day one mentality. And it's proven you know, time and time again through Amazon's history, right? If you think the company started as an online bookstore, it's a pretty humble idea. And it's now transformed, again, first party marketplace, third party marketplace, uh, cloud services provider with AWS, voice computing with Alexa, hardware with Echo and Kindle. It's also a grocer and Academy Award winning movie studio. And the only way that you build that range of products is you come in with the mindset that it is always day one. Because otherwise there's gonna be startups that are nipping at your heels that will come in and do the things that you could have done if not for the fact that you spent your entire day and year and decade maintaining that flagship product. And that's not what Amazon does and that's key to their success. Let's talk about Microsoft because I'm glad that you said they were a boring company and, and not me. Um, how does an, a, a day one mindset play out there when they are just so much part of the fabric and have been around for you know 
historically just so long? So Microsoft is, is really, it's, it's just an absolutely fascinating company and, and through the course of reporting and writing always day one, I became a bit of a Microsoft geek. <laughs> Although, I, I think that company hates me, but anyway, <laughs> it's, it's a long story. It goes back to our BuzzFeed days, I think, when they uh, made that chatbot Tay. Do you remember that chatbot? Yeah, that was an interesting day. Yeah, it was like this entertaining <laughs> chatbot for kids and then you know, the internet trained it overnight to be this racist monster, which mm -hmm. is, again, the story of the internet. But, um, but let, let's actually talk about what the company's done, which is interesting. So Microsoft obviously went and built for what the market needed with Windows, right? It was that we were moving into this era of desktop computing and Microsoft built the operating system. Things eventually, we, you know, we're now in this era of mobile and cloud. So obviously fill in the blanks, some stuff didn't go well for Microsoft in the middle. Um, the first thing was that we moved to web-based computing versus desktop-based computing. And that, you know, it's, it's challenging for Microsoft because they had both this cash cow of Windows that was making all this money for them in the desktop world, and they had the browser with Internet Explorer that was effectively working to unseat Windows. Because if you think about it, if the browser is fast and you can run programs on the browser, you can use any operating system. You can use Windows, you can use Apple, you can even use a computer that is only a browser, like a Chromebook, which would eventually be invented. So what did Microsoft do, right? What, was the, what were they going to do with this uh, browser, Internet Explorer? Were they going to work to make it fast and enable this era of cloud computing? Or were they going to keep it slow and help the profits funnel towards window, Windows and hold back the cloud world you know, for, for as long as they could? Not only that, they had this division, server and tools, which I mentioned, right? Which was all, it was supporting, it was the servers that supported the programs that were run on desktop. So they could have decided to keep funding the infrastructure for these on-premises servers, or they could work to build a cloud, which again, which would, uh, which would again help unseat Windows. They decided at first, under Steve Ballmer, to be what I call asset milkers. Do whatever you can to milk the Windows asset. That means they kept Internet Explorer slow. They didn't work to build cloud infrastructure. And what happened? Number one, Google, which was pushing forward with Gmail, obviously Search, Docs, Google Sheets, they tried to work with the existing infrastructure on the web for as long as they could. But eventually they said, this Internet Explorer thing and even Firefox, just not cutting it for us. We need the web to work faster because without it, the programs that we're trying to build, by the way, all competitive with Microsoft Office, uh, are, are just not going to be able to function. And that's how Chrome ended up unseating Internet Explorer. It was this Microsoft's determination and, and dedication to this day two mindset, milk the asset, that ended up losing at the browser war. Now talk about cloud, right? Microsoft was so afraid of cloud in the beginning that it ended up uh, ceding that territory to Amazon, right? And Amazon built that infrastructure for the web. So, What's interesting about Microsoft is it's this great example of a company going from a day one mindset to a day two mindset and then back to a day one mindset. You know, people ask, if our company, there's so many companies out there that say, you know, we really are all about preserving our flagship product. We're not going to spend a lot of time working on, on building for the future. Our culture just is not able to sustain that. And that's what Microsoft tried. Um, and they ended up flipping it back to a day one mindset because there was someone that was running the server and tools division who saw what was happening with cloud and decided and sold internally that it was important to move that forward. His name, Satya Nadella. And he said, listen, this is the future. 
our customers are going to get fired if they keep buying from us because that's where the past is and we got to move toward the future. And within that, within Microsoft, he led a campaign to build cloud infrastructure. That ended up becoming Azure. Azure is what's leading Microsoft today. They eventually moved all these programs to the web as well. Unfortunately, the browser uh, war was lost forever for them, even though they do have Edge today. Uh, but they did make this huge push with Azure, and now they're number two behind, uh, behind Amazon, and they're the second most valuable company in the world outside of Apple. So by taking the company back to this day one mindset, Satya Nadella was able to help the company reinvent, and ultimately that's what put them in position. And so, you know, any company that says, listen, we're this uh, company where we don't have the ability to reinvent, I would say, just look at the Microsoft example, read the Microsoft chapter in the book, and, and your mind might be changed. Um, what does sustainable success look like for the big tech companies? If you kind of look ahead to the next five or 10 years, if that's possible, can you, can you visualize that? I think that there's a temptation with these companies to stop reinventing. And you're seeing it right now with Meta, right now. Uh, think about all the analysts that are saying, listen, Meta needs to prioritize its flagship business. It shouldn't be moving to the metaverse. This is a money pit. I think Mark Zuckerberg, who's good friends with Bill Gates, knows exactly what happens if they stop to reinvent, right? And so I'm definitely, when it comes to investors, I feel their pain that they've put all this money into Meta. And based off of this flagship business, the based off of prioritizing the Metaverse over its flagship business, the company is down 71% over the year. So if you had a dollar in Meta at the beginning of 2022, because the company is trying to reinvent and not really showing results now, your dollar is now worth 29 cents. But that being said, I do think that the commitment to continue to reinvent, to say our flagship business is, is good, we need it, but if we don't build what the market needs today, tomorrow, and within the next five years, we're in trouble. Um, if, if the companies end up in that mindset where they say, okay, we know how this works, even still, we're gonna prioritize maintaining our flagship business, that's where they get in trouble. So when it comes to sustainable success, I would say the key really is, and again, going back to the title, it is always day one. Keep reinventing, keep trying to build what the market needs. Sometimes it will work, sometimes it won't. But if you stop and take your foot off the gas pedal, that's when you start to get uh, taken over by some of the startup folks you know, sitting here in the audience. Um, a colleague of mine at Vice wrote a provocative article recently which was getting at the idea that Facebook's monopoly was, was ending because it was moving into you know, Horizon Worlds. A, do you agree with that premise? And you know, follow up, are you really saying that Meta should continue going down this road? I mean, I don't want to kind of pin you to that. <laughs> it's not your decision, but wh yeah. what's your view? When it comes to keeping to invest in the metaverse, um, I would just say Mark Zuckerberg has the data. He's always had the data, looked at the data, reinvented based off of what the data says. So I would say it's really important to watch what's happening and, and make smart decisions based off of that. Um, but this idea to just abandon it willy-nilly because investors are mad doesn't make any sense to me. Now, your colleague who wrote that Meta is a, a monopoly, I would really um, push back on the premise that it ever was a monopoly. It is definitely the most uh, vulnerable of all big tech companies. What do Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google have in common? They all have operating systems. Meta, on the other hand, or, or Facebook, the app, is totally dependent on other people's operating systems to exist. I just don't see how you can be a monopoly in that situation because you can have a company like Apple or a company like Google with their operating system say, you know what, um, 
Nice app you have there, Facebook. We'll take 30% of your revenue. We'll, we'll break your ad business. And if a company can do that to another company, are they really a monopoly if that happens to them? I would push back and say no. Um, and then uh, as big tech companies adapt to the, the wider global economic situation, which as we all know isn't great, it, is there a, a smart route for them to take beyond layoffs, which is you know, obviously the, the go-to for, for companies? What would you say there? Oh yeah, I mean I definitely hope that there's more that they can do outside of layoffs. Um, I would say there's going to be a temptation. So right now we're in this mode of cost cutting as the economy turns. And for a lot of companies, cost cutting means, means cutting uh, people. And, but that also means cutting funding to experiments. And I think it really matters the type of experiments that you fund, right? If you stop funding the things that might be the future and might not show results for five and 10 years, you then open yourselves up to a vulnerability that a startup will eventually take that market and you'll not, you won't be in it. So I think it's crucial for them to keep funding experiments. They have to fund the right experiments. You know, they have to be um, smart about what they invest in. And then also when they're doing layoffs, right, there's, there's definitely two types of employees inside these companies. There's the one that, that are entrepreneurial, they're the ones that want to build new things, the ones that want to work on new projects. And there's the ones that kind of want to collect a paycheck, rest invest. And, you know, when you say we're going to cut 20% of, of workforce, 25% of workforce, I think it, you could take shortcuts to get to that number and lose your most entrepreneurial employees because they're not going to want to be on a sinking ship. They're not going to want to be on a cost-cutting enterprise. So I think that finding ways to hang on to the people who are actually going to move the needle forward is, is really, really crucial and underrated when it comes to what the future of these companies are going to look like. Um, unbelievably, we are running short of time. So as, as a final question to you, Alex, do you think there's anyone that can muscle into this big five? Or on the flip side, is there any chance that one of these big companies could fall out of this classification as big tech? I would say there's definitely companies that can put an end to them. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. They have really entrenched uh, markets and positions that are going to be really tough to unseat. So I don't personally have any candidate right now that's going to take share from them immediately. Um, but there's always risk. Like not, I think Medicare. dance or. ByteDance, well, ByteDance will be, in, will be interesting to see what happens with TikTok, mm -hmm. especially in the US um, and worldwide when it comes to countries, governments trying to figure out how to deal with you know, um, that, that app and, and its ownership and whether, whether they're comfortable with that. So, um, but also TikTok, uh, you know, there, there's too many clones out there right now for it to continue its growth. Um, YouTube Shorts, Reels, uh, you name it. So, um, I don't think that that will unseat a Facebook, for instance, but you can, there can be death by a thousand paper cuts, um, and I think that might happen in Meta. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to everyone in the audience for being the first ever audience at the Book Summit or Web Summit. Thank you. <laughs>